Okay, open your Bibles, look in your bulletins. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 7. We're covering a lot of ground today. And today is actually our 24th and final sermon in our Romans sermon series. And perhaps you're going, well, there's a few more verses left. I understand that. I totally get it. I could probably squeeze one or two more sermons in. But I wanted to finish with our message this morning, which is titled Harmony in the Church. Over spring break, I drove my family down to northern Georgia. A friend has a lake house. It's a beautiful place, rolling hills. And we spent a, um, a week there. Actually, it was four days. But um, it was wonderful. I got to ride my bike a lot. And he has a really cool motorcycle. Got to tour around on that. Really got to see the lay of the land in this small little town, town of Hiawassee, Georgia. <clears throat> and what I noticed over those few days is that there are a lot of Baptist churches in Hiawassee. I mean, there was Baptist Church on Main Street, and then a little further down Main Street, and then right off Main Street. I even saw what looked like a Baptist Church in someone's backyard, all right? Um, I estimate maybe like eight churches in Hiawassee. Now, that's all fine. It would be great um, if Hiawassee was like a really huge town, but I looked up online. Population, 810. <laughs> I mean, so, that, you know, it's like, it's like one church for every 100 people. And that's just for the Baptists. So anyway, how did this happen? How did they get so many small churches? Well, most likely it's as a result of church splits. You know, church splits, uh, churches will split over the simplest of matters. Churches have been known to split over conflict, over where the piano should be in the sanctuary, or what type of music, or whether the, the church should have a Christian school or not. Churches split over the most simplest of matters. Now, I do not think that Grace Presbyterian Church is in any danger of splitting any time soon, but I'm not naive enough to think that the seeds aren't present See, every Christian has deeply held notions as to how church should be done or or how a Christian should live their lives. And, And where there's disagreement over these things, there can be disharmony. And where there is disharmony, there can be division and the danger of a church splitting. So today Paul wants to show us the beauty and the importance of harmony in the church. And the passage we're going to read is kind of long, and it might be confusing for some of you, but there's an issue going on in this church in Rome. Some people think it's okay to eat meat. Others only eat vegetables. Some can drink wine. Others don't. Some have special days they worship on. Others don't. And what I want you to see as we read it, I want you to try to pick up on how is um, Paul um, pointing out the need for harmony? What, how does Paul help um, point these people in this church towards their mutual shared uh, identity in Christ and um, how to live that out. All right, so here we go. You guys ready? As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your character. We thank you that you are a welcoming God, a God who welcomes us uh, not just despite our differences, but despite our sin. And may we see in Christ Jesus the way of harmony. May we be taught by Paul. May I not put down any stumbling stone for a brother or sister here, but may we all with one voice I'll glorify you, Heavenly Father, we pray. Amen. Well, I, got, I need a little help from uh, our music team here. You guys ready? All right, there we go. So our sermon today is titled Harmony in the Church. So I thought I'd get uh, 
Josh and his crew to help us understand harmony and music, as well as unison, right, Josh? There we go. We got another four hours of music, is that right? <laughs> well, I do uh, get some good feedback from people in the congregation about the music here, which I always try to pass on to the team, because the trick is to surround yourself with talent um, as you're leading this team. But um, So we have great instrumentalists, but we also have great vocalists. So we try to um, add to the beauty of the music by taking different parts. So we just want to demonstrate... Um, you know, even in singing the same song, there's great uh, potential to vary the parts in such a way that just adds to the beauty of the song. Um, so we're just going to demonstrate uh, unity and harmony for you uh, with this song, Behold Our God. So here's us just singing the same line. Not that it's boring, but you'll get the idea. Behold our God, seated on His throne, come let us adore Him. And here's the same line with parts added. Behold our God, seated on His throne, So when, when the singers all sing the same melody uh, in the same, I guess, notes and that, it's, it's singing in unison. And, and, uh, but when each one takes a little different part, you can hear the different layers, right? And they're singing in harmony. So I thought that'd be helpful for us as we begin this sermon. See, in order for the body of Christ, the church, to live in harmony, we need to be clear on the distinctions between unison and harmony. See, Christians are called to sing, uh, metaphorically, sing in unison and in harmony. Metaphorically, we're to sing in unison when it, when it, uh, regarding the essentials of the Christian faith. Essentials such as Jesus being fully divine, that he is the Son of God, that he is both fully man and God, that he was born of a Virgin Mary, that he lived a perfect sinless life, that he took our sin on him on the cross, that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, that Jesus will one day return again to restore the heaven on earth, and, and that God will one day judge everyone for how we lived in the body. So these are the essentials of the Christian faith. You might be able to find one or two more. Uh, if you went to Bible school, you might know there's another one in there somewhere. But listen to me. Let this sink in. Everything else is non-essential. We all nod our heads in agreement. But we don't often live that way. Paul in verse 1 calls these non-essentials opinions. We don't like to think of what we hold dear as just an opinion, do we? It's essential. But Paul says not to quarrel over opinions in verse 1. 
My friends, whether you ascribe to infant baptism or not, it's non-essential. Whether you believe in a pre-trib rapture of the church or not, that's a non-essential. Whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, it's a non-essential. Some of you are thinking, what do all those things mean anyway, Mark? I don't even know what those are. All right. Okay. Let me give you a couple examples closer to home. Some Christians send their kids to public schools. Some send their kids to uh, private schools. Some send them to private Christian schools. Some Christians homeschool. Each one holds deeply as to why they do what they do. Some Christians think that being a Democrat is the only viable option, while others think the litmus test of a true Christian is that you are a registered Republican. The problem is with all this is that, yes, these are closely held beliefs, and you might have really good reasons for believing them. I get it. Uh, But Paul wants us to see that your closely held beliefs, unless they are essentials, are really non-essentials. And therefore, we are to live our lives in harmony with other Christians when we differ. Paul wants us to see it's not just the right thing to do. It is, in fact, the loving thing to do. And it also brings great glory to God. This morning, Paul wants to teach us the gospel way that leads to harmony. As we look at this, we're going to look at three areas. First, we're going to look at gospel liberty. Then we're going to look at gospel love. And then we're going to look at gospel living. First, gospel liberty. No church will ever experience gospel harmony unless they first embrace gospel liberty. But before you can embrace gospel liberty, you got to know what it is, right? Okay, so let me, here's, let me explain. God, through Jesus Christ, has freed the Christian in so many ways. We are at liberty to make choices that differ with other Christians. The important thing is, how will we use this freedom? What's the situation in Rome? Well, at the end of verse 1, Paul identifies a problem. He says not to quarrel over opinions. And then Paul describes what they're quarreling over. How would he like to be in the church when they're reading this letter, right? Uh, There were Christians in Rome who believed certain things were okay to do, while other Christians vehemently believed those things weren't okay for for Christians to do. Some Christians in Rome believed that it was okay to eat meat that was bought at the local markets, even though, check this out, chances are that perhaps it was used in a pagan worship service the day before. You would have no idea. So could you in good conscience eat that? Could you go to Citarella and buy a steak thinking that maybe the night before it was used in some sort of pagan worship? I don't know. Maybe you could, maybe you couldn't. I'm not saying that, okay? You can go there and get your food. Citarella, sorry. All right. Also, some of the Christians in Rome believed it was okay to drink wine, even though wine was regularly used in drunken orgies. Some said it was no big deal, while others said there's no way, I cannot drink in good conscience. Still, other Christians in Rome had some days on the calendar that were celebrated. Most likely, these were the Jewish Christians who still held some of the Old Testament festivals. For them, they had special days throughout the year. While other Christians said, you know what? Every day is special. Every day is going to be lived for the Lord. Now, today, um, there are some Christians who cannot in good conscience allow their kids to go trick-or-treating on Halloween. While some Christians uh, are free to do that. They're okay with that. 
Paul divides these quarreling groups into two groups, the weak and the strong. And in verse 1 of chapter 15, what group does Paul place himself in? He places himself with the strong. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. What does it mean to be strong or weak? To be strong means that you, as a Christian, have a deeper understanding, at least in one particular area. It's true, we can be strong in one area and weak in another. Um, The strong have a firmer grasp on what the gospel has done to liberate the Christian. Um, Regarding meat in the market, Paul knew. Paul knew that it didn't matter where the meat came from, so long as it was free-range and grass-fed. I'm joking. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. <laughs> Paul was strong. Well, there's some Christians who are like, you got to eat, you know, you got to be a vegetarian. You, gotta, you can't eat meat or whatever. You got to eat grass fed. I don't know. Uh, Paul was strong in the sense that he understood it didn't matter if meat could have been used in pagan worship. Paul knew that he was set free from that. See, those who are strong in a particular area, they have a broader scope of options, right? Paul was both free to eat, and he was free not to eat. But not so someone who is weak. The weak person just cannot get past the fact that the meat that he or she is buying could have been used in pagan worship, and therefore he or she is a vegetarian. Paul says for that person, eating meat just isn't an option. His conscience won't allow for it. Look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So while a strong person can both eat and not eat, the weaker person has only one option available, not to eat. Now, both the strong and the weak are prone to sin, First, the sin of the strong. Look at verse 2 and beginning of verse 3. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Here we go. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. The Greek word for despise here means to look down on, to have a low opinion of, to, to ridicule. We can sin as Christians when we're strong, um, when we despise the one who is weak. Those who are strong can roll their eyes at what they think are pathetic scruples of the weak. They they ridicule them over how oversensitive their consciences are. They, They look down on them as ones who just don't know their Bibles very well. But we need to realize that if you're strong in some area, if you're not careful, you can become prideful of the liberty that you enjoy in the gospel. Your attitude can be far from loving. In fact, you can run people off from the church by your cavalier attitude. That's the sin of the strong. With the weak, there are basically two main faults. One leads into the other. One, they elevate what binds their consciences into a law for others to follow. And then two, they judge other Christians based upon how well they fit into that law, whether they obey it or not. We see this in verse 3. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Take, for instance, the stance of some modern Christians that they have against dancing. In the Bible, dancing is not 
named as a sin. In fact, there are incidents in the Bible where dancing is actually commendable and approved in God's sight. Think of David, like, taking his clothes off and dancing before the ark as he's being brought back into Jerusalem, right? How is it then that modern Christians have turned not dancing into a law to bind others' consciences? I don't know. But perhaps it went something like this. There's an elder or deacon, and he's single, and he's at a dance, and things get a little crazy. He gets a little excited, and he has bad thoughts, and he's like, no, no, no. And in his own conscience, he's like, "I, I shouldn't be dancing. It's not good for me. I'm not able to keep my mind pure. Paul would say, that's a good thing for you. If your conscience says that dancing for you might cause you uh, to entertain appropriate thoughts, then it's best not for you to dance. Problem is, is when you make that rule a rule to bind someone else's conscience. That's what the man did. He held a meeting at the church and he declared that dancing is a sin and all Christians must abstain. All right, I made that story up. But, I mean, that's just kind of how these things work. We can take something that binds our conscience, being a Republican, homeschooling, or drinking, and we can make it a law for others to follow. And then we're prone to judge people for how they follow our conscience-derived laws. See, the sin of the weak is that they take their opinions and they make them essentials. And they demand that others sing in unison to their essentials. Paul writes at the end of verse 3, though, Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Instead, what does Paul encourage us to do? Instead of despising or passing judgment, what are you to do? You are to welcome Christians are to welcome each other. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. The Greek word translated welcome here has the sense of accepting someone in order to bring them close to you. Now this is no easy thing for you and I to do when we differ in regards to deeply held opinions, is it? How can we even begin to welcome others and accept them? Look at the end of verse 3. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed both the Christian who feels at liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols and the Christian whose conscience cannot bear it. And so if God has welcomed him, so too you and I. And when we welcome, it must not be half-heartedly. It must be with open arms. Paul shows us something here. With regards to our Christian liberties, Paul Paul lays down the priority of one's conscience over liberty. Conscience trumps liberty. Did you notice Paul didn't take sides? Though he's strong, he didn't say, come on, weak, get over this. Come on, you need to have a little more understanding here. Uh, You need to realize these are just opinions that you have, and I'm okay to do what I do. No. Paul does want us to mature. He is talking about these things with the church. He does want us to understand the liberties that we have in Christ, 
But his greatest concern is for what? Our consciences, that they would be clear before God. In our passage, Paul tells his readers in Rome that it is permissible to eat meat and drink wine. He wants them to grow in knowledge of their gospel liberties. But he also says, he says essentially, if your conscience is still not at ease with eating or drinking, then don't do it. That's okay. In fact, it would be wrong for you to eat or drink if your conscience won't allow for it. That's what he tells us in verse 5 and 6. Look at that. In verse 14, verse, uh, chapter 14. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That is, your conscience should be clear on this matter, whether you celebrate one day or not. And then look what he says. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. What is Paul saying? First, Paul is saying you should be fully convinced in your own mind. That is, don't eat or drink if your conscience is weak in this matter or anything else like that. Your conscience takes priority over liberty. So say you're, say you're not sure about drinking, you're, you know, you're old enough now, and, uh, but a Christian friend explains to you all about your liberty as a Christian to go out and drink. And, and so you do, but at the end of the day, you have a guilty conscience about it. Paul is saying, if your conscience isn't clear, then don't do it. Abstain. Your conscience trumps your liberty. But also check this out. Paul wants us to see that both the weak and the strong honor God when they live out their chosen convictions. Paul says that the one who eats to the Lord gives thanks to God. He says the same thing of the one who abstains. Both the strong and the weak. Did you see it here? They say grace over their meals. The one who eats meat, thank you, God, for this day and for how you love me and for this food before me. The vegetarian, thank you, God, for this day, for how you love me and this food before me. They're both living their lives to honor God. They have so much in common that they should be in harmony. I don't know any other way to illustrate this other than to... to, um, Highlight the relationship between skiers and snowboarders. (laughs) Both skiers and snowboarders share what? A love for deep powder, for bowls of chili at 12,000 feet, (laughs) for Advil. Both love the view from up high. Both enjoy the thrill of speeding down the slopes, but skiers despise snowboarders, and snowboarders disrespect skiers. And who can blame them? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did I just say that? If Paul could gather them all together, what would he say? He'd say, guys, you both love the mountain. You share the same joys. You both seek to honor it. You know, with how you ski or snowboard, you share that in common. You sing these things in unison. Now, now live in harmony over the non-essentials. Try not to run into each other, but have a good day. Right? Do you see that? Maybe you don't. I don't know. I see it. Okay. Let's bring this home. 
the Christian who cannot in good conscience send their kid to a public school honors the Lord with that decision. Takes a lot of sacrifice to do that. The Christian who can in good conscience send their kid to public school honors the Lord in that decision and spends a lot of time praying. (laughs) Both enjoy God and honor him. Both say grace over their children's lives. So we should all live in harmony. Do you get this? Do you see areas in your own life where you need to listen to Paul's correction? Are there areas where you despise others? Are there areas where you judge others for standards that you have that really aren't essential? Take time today to be corrected. Thank God for how he's welcomed you, for how he's welcomed others, so that you may sing in harmony. That's only when you affirm gospel liberty and understand what it's about that you can begin to live out Paul's next point, which is gospel love. So Paul has shown us that the Christian has liberty in Christ, but also our consciences take priority over our liberties. Now what we'll see is that the big issue before us isn't that we're free as Christians, but rather, how will we use our freedom? Paul says, let us use our freedom to love. What is gospel love? Well, first, what it's not. (laughs) First, gospel love is not passing judgment on others. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on another any longer, right? We are not to judge. I think we kind of get that, right? Don't need to spend much more time there. In addition, we're not to put up stumbling blocks. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. What would be a stumbling block or a a hindrance? Well, I think a good example of that is when I was a a youth director in St. Louis, we did seven missions trips to Honduras and and, um, love the Honduran people. Honduran Christians are a little different than American Christians in some areas. And and one thing is, um, uh, in Honduran Christians, uh, not only was it required that you wear uh, a modest swimsuit, but if you were female, you'd have to wear a shirt over your swimsuit. Now, most of modern, uh, you know, most American Christians understand that, you know, you're free to swim with just a swimsuit. You don't need a shirt over it, right? So in this regards, we are strong, and you could say the Hondurans are weak. See, the strong are able to what? Both wear a swimsuit with a shirt, as well as wear a swimsuit without a shirt, right? But the Hondurans are weak in that they're not at liberty to wear a swimsuit without a shirt over them. All right, you guys tracking with me? I'm getting a lot of, like, glazed looks here. Okay, all right. What if the females in our youth, youth group jumped in without a shirt over their, over their swimsuit? What would that have done to our brothers and sisters in Honduras? Uh, Paul says that um, we would not be pursuing peace with them. We wouldn't be promoting harmony with them. That we would not be walking in love. That we'd be putting a stumbling stone or a hindrance before them. Cause them to think, what's wrong with those American Christians? Trust me, there's a lot of things that were wrong with us down there. But, um, you know, so we purposely, kids, got to wear a T-shirt, all right? Okay.
Gospel love also is not being um, a bad witness. Look at chapter 14, verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. We need to understand that our quarreling inside the church can be seen negatively outside of the church. One commentator tells this story. It's a story of two congregations that were actually just a few blocks apart from each other in the community. It wasn't Hiawassee. I don't know where it was. But um, they thought it would be better if they had two churches would merge to become one united, larger, more effective body um, rather than two struggling churches. Now, it was a great idea, but they couldn't pull it off. What was the problem? Well, they couldn't agree on how to recite the Lord's Prayer. One group preferred to say, forgive us our trespasses, while the other group demanded, forgive us our debts. Now, what did those outside the church think about that? Well, when they read the local newspaper the next day, here's what they read. One church went back to its trespasses while the other returned to its debts. When we're unable to sing in harmony, the watching world rolls its eyes at us and wants nothing to do with the church. So what is love? Paul shows us that with gospel love, there is a priority of love over liberty. Verses 14 and 15, we see this. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul's like saying, I get it. I understand my freedoms. But he says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul's saying, I'm strong, I get it, I know I can eat anything. But if we grieve our brothers by what we eat or drink, we are not walking in love. Maybe you're a Christian who knows that you're free to to drink wine or beer in moderation. Say you invite some families over and you know that one of these couples really doesn't have a clear conscience about such things. What will you do? Will you raise a toast to your liberty? <laughs> you know, will, you, will you quote Psalm 104, verse 15? God gave wine to gladden the hearts of man. Or will you chill some iced tea and some Cokes? Christian, we need to etch this into our brains. Love trumps liberty. Check out this short statement by Martin Luther. Here's what he said. It's two parts. First, a Christian man is, most, is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. And then he says, a Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. How is it that we appropriate such an attitude and commitment to harmony? Well, gospel love sees other Christians with whom we disagree as those for whom Christ has died. Paul writes at the end of verse 15, he says that, you know, if we do not love in this way, if if instead we demand our rights to eat or to drink, 
before our brothers or sisters, then we can destroy one for whom Christ died. Now, destroy here doesn't mean like to kill him. It means, it means to wreak havoc on their consciences. It, it means to ca- cause them to harbor bitterness. Paul says, how can you do this to one for whom Christ has died? Christian, we need to stop looking, stop looking for, for what makes us different and start recognizing more clearly what unites us, what we hold in common. Christ has given his life for all. Christ has called the weak unto himself. Christ died for the weak. How then can we trample over them with our liberty? Love also prioritizes the kingdom over self. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you know, we're not to get wrapped up in the things that our fallen world delights in, things like eating and drinking. Instead, the kingdom is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. The kingdom of heaven to which we belong isn't about maximizing our liberties. It's about living out the righteousness that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. It's about walking in the peace that we have received from God above, a peace that's not just for ourselves, a peace that's to be shared within the body of Christ, a peace that's to be brought to our neighbors who don't yet believe in Christ. And the kingdom of heaven is about joy, about rejoicing in God's gifts, about his salvation, about how he calls all kinds of weird, whacked out people into his church (laughs) so that we can all sing in unison where we need to and in harmony in all other places. Lastly, Paul shows us gospel living in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And what he wants us to address is How does gospel living promote harmony? First, we see that the strong have an obligation. I'm not making this up. That's what he says. Chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. It's true. The weak have a tendency to have watchful eyes. They tend to be on piety patrol, looking for ways other Christians don't fit their mold. And so if you're strong, guess what? You need to bear with that. Don't put any stumbling blocks in their way. But even then, guess what? the weak will find something by which to criticize or be offended over. And instead of rolling your eyes, make peace. Recognize how in some way you perhaps could have offended your brother or sister's conscience. See, the strong are not to please themselves by demanding their liberties, but rather they are to live without their liberties in order to please the weak. We see... Paul tells us that when the strong fulfill this obligation, there is blessing for the weak. When the strong pleases his neighbor for his neighbor's good, what does he say? He is built up. 
Two of the most famous Christians during the Victorian era in England were Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. They were both mighty preachers of the gospel, and they're actually early on in their ministries. Uh, they were great friends. They, uh, they fellowshiped together. They exchanged pulpits, which means they didn't like exchange the pulpits, but like they preached in each other's churches. And, um, but then they had a disagreement, and they got into the newspapers. See, Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual because he went to the theater. Interestingly enough, though, Spurgeon smoked cigars, a practice many Christians condemned. In fact, on one occasion, someone asked Spurgeon about his cigars, and he said he did not smoke to excess. And then when asked by what excess meant, he jested, well, no more than two at a time. A few years later, when Spurgeon was at the height of his fame, he walked down a street in London and saw a sign which read, We sell the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes. He quit that day. Why? Why stop doing something you feel free to enjoy? Spurgeon chose not to please himself with his liberties, but to please his Christian neighbor and to build him or her up. See, the gospel calls the strong to love the weak, to put up with their failings, so that the weak can be built up, so that there can be harmony in the church. Do you see it this way? Paul sees it this way. More importantly, Jesus sees it this way. Look at verse 3 of chapter 15. It says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul is doing what every good preacher does. He brings us back to Jesus. Jesus was the freest human who ever lived. And he was also the humblest servant who ever lived. He did not live for his own pleasure, but for his father's pleasure, so that we may experience God's pleasure. And in doing so, in the life that he lived, in the death that he died, and the new life that he has risen from the grave, he has brought great pleasure to our souls. Jesus willingly welcomed us, not just over our weaknesses. He welcomed us even when we had reproaches and sin in our lives. And he allowed that to fall on himself. You know, we wouldn't be Christians, weak or strong, were it not for Christ's willingness to offer himself up in our place. None of us were pleasing in God's sight. We were all deserving of his rejection. But Jesus took our rejection upon himself on the cross. And so, my friends, the more that we see that our Savior lived this way towards us, the more willing we will be to come alive to this way of living for each other. True? 
Well, our passage begins where it ends where it began. Paul began by saying what? We are to welcome the weak. And in verse 7, um, we see an even greater welcome. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jesus welcomes us. He took care of it all for us. Left heaven and came to a fallen world so that we could be brought near to him. All right, so we looked at gospel liberty. We looked at gospel love. We looked at gospel living. Where does it lead us this morning? For Paul, such knowledge must lead to harmonious worship in the church. Paul believed that as the Spirit of God worked in the midst of the people of God, that as they humbled themselves, as they chose righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, that God would transform them. That as they, as they focused on the essentials that they sang in unison, they could also sing the non-essentials in harmony. And in the end, God would be glorified by the church. My friends, oh, that God would be glorified by Grace Presbyterian Church in the way in which we live in harmony with one another. Paul confidently prays for the church in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 15. I want to end by reading that. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a welcoming God. Oh, we have much to learn. We hold so tightly to petty differences when there is so much that unites us. May we delight to not just sing in unison over the essentials, but may we delight as well to sing in harmony as you have given us different minds and consciences. You've called us to, um, to, to live in such a way that we build each other up. May this be true of Grace Church in this day and in the weeks and years to come, we pray. Amen.